We are in Colossians. Um, Joseph introduced our three-week sermon series last week that uh, has interrupted our walk through 1 Peter. Every year, the Sunday after Labor Day, we do what we call a vision series, which is our yearly reminder of why we exist as a local church. Like when we got some believers together back in 2013, why did we just join another church that already existed? Why do we have this passion, this compulsion to plant a new church in an area full of churches? And so every year it's a series to remind us that this is who we are and this is why we do what we do. And this is how we do it that makes us unique and distinct uh, as a local church, not completely unique and distinct. It's not as though every other church is nowhere close to how we're doing things, but it's what flavors us as a local church. And we take uh, sometimes long series to walk through a bunch of particulars like we did last year about uh, who we are and why we exist and how we do things. And then some years like this year, it's just three weeks for us to share a word from our heart. And that's what we've uh, chosen to do, hopefully led by the Spirit, is to set aside time uh, for your three elders, your three pastors, to share uh, a word from our heart. Uh, Something that in all the years that we've had Sunday gatherings, we've never done. Uh, Just, hey, you choose what you want to talk about uh, this Sunday. It's kind of scary. Just like share our hearts. Like there might be a lot of things that we think and feel that are good that may not be like biblical or or this is the truth of Scripture being applied to our life. And uh, not necessarily wrong or anti-Bible, but it's just our thoughts and not God's thoughts. And that's the aim of what we're trying to do during this time each week as we gather on Sundays is to feed the people of God, the Word of God, so the Spirit of God can do this work in our hearts that only the Spirit does through the Word. And if there's anyone in our worship gathering who's not a part of God's family, that we hope and pray they would hear the good news of Jesus and his gospel, they would repent and trust in Jesus for forgiveness, salvation, and life. And that's something that only God's Word can do, as we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1. My words cannot save you. My words won't save you. Even if they're good words, like hallmark quality words, they're not words that will bring life where there's death or light where there's darkness. Only God's word can do that. So we we have to proclaim God's word. So aside from saying personal things like I love being one of your pastors, I really do. Uh, I love what we get to do together in our city. I love getting to talk about the work of the spirit of God in your life to other people, not like calling you out by name. Well, let me tell you about this guy named Kevin and good things happening in his life. Uh, Not like that anonymously, but pastors have conversations or I meet people in my job as a chaplain to local businesses. I'm like, yeah, I got this person in my church that's been working through that. And it helps me um, encourage the employees that I see as a chaplain. Um, And and I've had conversations with the pastors. Uh, One guy asked me like, who are the most spiritual people in your church? And for some pastors, that might be a hard question. He's like, I don't know. I've just got a bunch of religious people in my church. And for me, I'm like, who's not? Like, I I can literally go around this room and talk about the work of the Spirit of God in the lives of our people and and those who aren't with us this morning. And and so uh, we've experienced amazing things as the Spirit of God is, is transforming us, sustaining us, healing us, giving us grace to persevere, giving us strength to forgive providing hope to the hopeless, are just giving us uh, just enough faith 
to keep hanging on for one more day and one more week and one more month. Uh, but I want to share a word. So I can say a lot of stuff like that. But I want to share a word from God's word. And I just have today. And there's the whole Bible. So we're not going to cover the whole Bible today. I'm thinking really big picture uh, today. Something that really encapsulates um, our vision that we desire. We exist for all people to enjoy Christ always. Uh, we always and we, we have always and we will always want to be as the crossing a church that is about Jesus and his gospel. Like we want that to be the T-shirt we wear, the flag we wave, the drum we beat. It's about Jesus and his gospel. It's not about a building, as we know, church on the road. Uh, next week we won't be here. So if you don't know about that, uh, see one of us after the, uh, we, we finish we're going to be all the way across the river. Ooh, scary. Uh, but yeah, we'll have to pack everything up, us who are in Monroe, and make a long trek uh, over to Western Monroe next Sunday. Um, but it's not about a building, as we know. We're the people of God wherever we're at. It's not about a denomination, as helpful as those can be, as frustrating as those can be. It's not about a network. It's not about a person or a particular person in their charismatic leadership or non-charismatic leadership. It's about Jesus and his gospel. How can we keep the spotlight on him? And there's lots of passages that can help us do that. But we desire for all people in everything and in, in anything to find joy um, in Christ. So in anything and everything that we have joy in, how does that lead to joy in Christ? We enjoy good, good music. We enjoy good food. We enjoy good relationships. We enjoy good college football. Sometimes we stay up to 1.30 watching a crazy game in Colorado. We enjoy all these things, but can it lead to enjoyment of Jesus? Can it lead to the enjoyment of Jesus among other people? It never stops with the thing we're enjoying. We want to go to the one who gave us the thing, the one who created the good thing. Uh, we enjoy our families. We enjoy hard work. We enjoy our homes, but don't let it terminate there. Use those things to find joy in Christ. Um, we desire for that to be the ultimate outcome of how we live life. Joy in Christ. And for all we do as a church to lead to joy in Christ. For, never, for us to never become uptight, stiff, miserable, self-righteous religious people. Because that can happen to all of us. We can all begin to be impressed with ourselves. And... Look how amazing we are. Look at all the things we're doing. And we lose sight of Jesus. But we want to be a people who live realizing our desperate need of Jesus and his gospel. And we're captivated by him. We're captivated by his love for us. And then we're empowered to lavish his love on others um, and on each other. And that begins with a God-sized view of Jesus. Living with a view of Jesus that is as great and big and as amazing as he is. And a bunch of passages we could go to that do help us do that. One particular is found in Colossians 1. The letter of Colossians, um, a, a book that we actually walked through like way back when. There was about four of y'all that were a part of the crossing uh, back in 2015, 2016, I believe. Um, the letter of Colossians was written by Paul to this church that he actually never planted, and as far as we know, he never visited. Real interesting story how there ended up being a church in Colossae when Paul, the amazing church planter, never went to the city. And we believe there was a, a man from Colossae who went to another city who heard Paul preach the gospel, 
He comes alive in Christ Jesus, goes back to his hometown, and he can't help but speak of the one who's changed his life. As he begins to share Jesus among the people in Colossae, disciples are made, a church is planted, elders are eventually appointed. And then as any church uh, that's planted uh, discovers, issues come up and we need help. And so this letter, the letter to the Colossians, is in response to a letter or at least a message that they sent to the Apostle Paul. Paul, we're having these issues. Would you help us figure these things out? And that's what we have here. And after the traditional kind of greeting that are always a part of Paul's letter, he then offers a prayer that turns into a hymn. So let's begin reading in verse nine with the prayer. Paul says, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. And growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. And then in verse 13, there's a transition from a prayer to the Father who's enabled us to share, enabled them to share in the saints' inheritance, to a hymn about that inheritance, beginning in verse 13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. That's a picture of salvation. Before Christ, we were living in the domain of darkness. And we came alive in Christ and we're transferred into another kingdom. A kingdom that is the kingdom of the Son that He loves. So who is this Son? He goes on to write this hymn. In him, Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the invisible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have with all, all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We want to walk through that hymn and see these ten things quickly that we find. So you can just leave your Bibles open to that 15 through 20, and walk through ten things we see in this passage, ten phrases about Jesus he is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit. We know this. It's what Jesus told the woman by the well in John 4. So how can we see the invisible God? It's when the invisible chooses to manifest himself in the visible flesh. It's what we call the incarnation. When Jesus took on flesh, we read about it in a passage like John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. A few verses later, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but this man Jesus of Nazareth, he is the image, the exact representation of God. He has made him known. We were created in or according to the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. 
the perfect representation. One of Jesus' disciples, Philip, said to Jesus in John 14, uh, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus tells Philip, uh, have I been with you this long and you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which was a earth-shattering, mind-blowing statement to make to a first century Jew. Because when you say Father to them, they're thinking Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. Father is the God of the Old Testament. Great, mighty, shaking mountains, walking through the, the Red Sea on dry ground and, and doing amazing things, defeating armies. And this man from Nazareth, Jesus, says to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen him. We're one and the same. And it's an incredible statement of his divine, his understanding of his divine nature. And if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. And the only source for what we know about Jesus is the word. Intimacy with Jesus apart from the word of God is impossible because we only know Jesus through the word of God. We know the living word through the written word. Secondly, he's the firstborn of all creation, a favorite verse by Jehovah's Witness to make the claim that Jesus was created. Just one huge problem. The very next stanza says, by him, all things were created. If Jesus was created and everything was created by him, how could he be involved in creating himself? So firstborn here does not refer to the first one created, but just like in the Old Testament, when God refers to the nation of Israel as firstborn, they're not the first nation on earth. Firstborn here speaks of prominence, rank, importance. It's how the Bible understood the firstborn in the families. The firstborn was the most important uh, child to be born. They're the ones who would be the primary inheritors of all things, carry on the family name and those sorts of things. And all the firstborns in the room are like, yeah, of course, we're still important. And all the secondborns are like, yeah, they think they're that important, really are. But there's nothing in creation that ranks ahead of or more prominent than Jesus, the firstborn in all creation, gets all the inheritance and all the rights, and that is Jesus Christ. He's thirdly the creator of all things. John 1 also says this, uh, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The passage in John 1 refers to Jesus as the word or the logos. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Let there be an expanse that divides the earth into land and sea. Let there be sun, the moon, and stars. God spoke Words, Genesis 1, creation appears from nothing. God is the agent, the word is the agent of creation, and therefore all things were made through him, the word. Well then, who is the word? John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Jesus. Dwelt here is a word that means tabernacle. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people in a structure that he told them to build called a tabernacle. Later, that was the temple, a permanent structure. Now, that structure was Jesus who referred to himself as the temple. And what's more amazing, if you carry this forward, who is the temple today? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 6. We are the Holy of Holies. Where is Jesus today? Jesus is dwelling in his people among his people. We carry the presence of God in the world today. It's not a place. It's not a location. It's not a building. It's the people of God. And he says he created all things, a list that's intended to emphasize to these believers that all things, including all spiritual powers, 
uh, which help us to piece together the heretical teaching they were, they, they were working through as a local church. Uh, there might be some other spiritual power, whether demonic or angelic or philosophic, that they think is more powerful than Jesus. And Paul is saying it's not more powerful than Jesus if Jesus created it. Because all other powers, demonic, angelic, or philosophic, are all created powers, not greater than the one who created them. Now you might want to get into the, well, why did he create demonic powers? Why is that part of creation? That's a whole other conversation for another day. There's good reasons for that. But they are under and subservient to the one who created them. Because if you create them, you have the inherently the rights to be providential and, and own them. Fourth, he is before all things and sustains all things. This speaks to his preexistence. Jesus existed before anything else existed. There was God and then out of nothing, God called all things into existence with his word. And now all things continue to exist and hold together because of Christ. We saw this also in Hebrews 1. The reason the sun still burns, the planets still orbit the sun on a regular pattern. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. The reason trees and plants bud out in the spring and lose their leaves in the fall. The reason the hydraulic cycle continues to move water through evaporation, condensation, precipitation. The reason gravity continues and electrons move charges. The reason your heart beats right now and you're doing nothing to make it beat. The reason you wake up every day. The reason you have eyes to see and ears to hear. A mind to think and blood pumping through your body. The reason you have 10 trillion cells working all day, every day without you even thinking about it is because of Jesus. He keeps it all working. And you're not doing anything to help. You're just... Okay, good. I'm, I woke up today. Woo. Good. I'm glad I did. Jesus kept you alive while you slept, which is a, a picture in the physical realm of how he wants to live in the spiritual realm. We rest in him. Live in a state of rest, trusting he provides everything that we need spiritually as well. Now we have a bit of a transition. Some call those first three verses old creation or, or the supremacy of Jesus this is who Jesus is. Now we move into the new creation or the sufficiency of Jesus, what Jesus has done. So fifthly, he's the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the church, head of the body, the body of Christ. You can lose a lot of parts of your body and still be alive, but you cannot lose your head. If something happens to your head, uh, there's no head replacement surgery that's waiting out there. Sometimes we may want to have a head replacement surgery. If you're in college, you're struggling to get good grades. Can I get someone else's head to take all these tests? Uh, but there's, there's nothing like that. The head is the source of life in the body. The head is the source of direction in the body. So it's clearly the role of Jesus in his church. So if someone asks you, well, who's the pastor of the Crossing Church? You should say Jesus is. Jesus is the senior pastor of the Crossing Church. The elders or pastors of the crossing are primarily tasked with leading you to follow Christ. As long as we are following Christ, you should follow our leadership. We can say that boldly and confidently because we're following the senior pastor of the crossing. But if we're not leading you to follow Christ, you should call us out on it as part of your role. We're not above accountability. It's also, uh, this is also a significant relationship Jesus has with his body, the church, that he does not have with any other part of creation. And so when you're called a church member, it's referring to you being a member of the body of Christ, not a member of a religious organization or a club. You are a functioning, contributing, healthy member of the body of Christ. Sixthly, uh, he is the beginning and firstborn from the dead. 
Very similar to the image of God, firstborn of all creation. He is the beginning, founder, originator. He's before all things. But when you combine that with the firstborn from the dead, it's a little bit different emphasis Paul's making. Uh, Firstborn from the dead doesn't mean Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead. We know that's not true. Elijah raised people in the Old Testament. Jesus himself raised three people we know of from the dead. In the Gospels, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the son of the widow of Nain. Peter and Paul both raised people from the dead in the book of Acts, Dorcas, and Eutychus. But Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead, never to die again. As great as it was probably for Lazarus to be raised from the dead, they had to die again, which I'm not sure how I would feel about that. Maybe it was easier because they knew what to expect. Maybe they're like, man, I've already done this. I got to do this again. Um, But, you know, nowadays they could write a book, make a movie, gotten rich off of that. Uh, But back then, there probably wasn't a lot of uh, bonus points. Jesus is the beginning and firstborn of the new resurrection, the end time resurrection. Jesus was the first one to go through what we're all going to go through one day. This being resurrected into a glorified body. We, everything that we know about what our bodies might be like in the eternal state, we only know because it's about Jesus, because of what Jesus experienced after he rose from the dead. We don't know a lot, but we know, can we eat in the eternal state? Yeah, Jesus ate. Is there some uh, physical resemblance to what we look like today in, in the glorified, the eternal state? Are we going to turn into these faceless, nameless ghosts? No, there, Jesus had scars in his body. It was, they had the ability to recognize him and identify him. He went by the same name. So everything that we know about the eternal state and our glorified bodies, we know because Jesus is the first one to do that. Like, I love to do funerals, not because someone's died. I don't love the fact there is a funeral, but people die. It happens. And at funerals, I love to stand in cemeteries and tell people that a cemetery is actually a place of hope. The hope of laying the person that we love into the ground and know for a fact they're coming out one day. If they are in Christ and Christ is in them, they're going to come out one day and they're going to be instantly transformed into a glorified body. We know this from 1 Corinthians 15 that will never die again, that will never grow old again, that will never get sick again, that will never be in pain again, that will never need a surgery again, that will never have cancer again. Like, Cemeteries are not places of sadness or spookiness. They're places of hope because of what Jesus has done to death. And so this is all true because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Eighthly, he is um, that in everything he might be preeminent in all things and all the universe. The purpose of the resurrection, the purpose of all Christ has done is so that in all things he would be supreme He will be preeminent. He will be Lord. He will be ruler. He will be king over all. There's no one more supreme. Philippians 2 tells us that one day every single knee will bow and confess him as Lord and Savior, the supreme one. We don't see this yet, but it's coming. It's this theological perspective that we call the already not yet. Christ has already done all that needs to be done for this to happen. Christ is already the ruler and king over the universe. But that is not yet a reality to all people in and all the universe and all the powers. Like we are moving to that day when all things will be brought low and under his feet and every knee will bow. By God's grace, now we are part of the new creation that willingly bow before our king. And we long for more people to be like that. 
But there will be a day when every knee will bow, either willingly or by force, because they recognize who Jesus really is. But for them, it will be too late. It will be too late. Ninthly, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. There, This could be another reference to the false teaching that was springing up in Colossae, which said Jesus is not enough to experience the fullness of God. You need something more to fill you up. Now, interestingly, this word fullness has two possible meanings. It can refer to a glass that is half full of water, which needs more water to be full. Or it can refer to a glass that's filled to the brim, which cannot fit one more drop. Which, of course, is the usage that's in mind here. Paul's word to them was, in Jesus, all there is of God is in him. You don't have to look anywhere else to know God or experience God outside of Jesus Christ. Not only that, this is pleasing and good in God's eyes. Like God would not be more pleased, could not be more pleased than to fully dwell and reveal himself through Jesus Christ. Like there's only one Grand Canyon. I've never been. We've actually flown over it. It's pretty cool from 30,000 feet. But I've never actually stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and had that moment that some of y'all have had. But it would be kind of ridiculous for me to walk to a ditch in my yard and say, well, this is kind of like the Grand Canyon. No, it doesn't come close to the Grand Canyon. It's very little, nothing like the Grand Canyon. There's only one Grand Canyon. It would be silly to compare anything else to that, just as silly as it would be to experience God apart from or try to experience God apart from Jesus Christ. It's in him alone the fullness of God dwells. And then tenthly, he reconciled all things through his blood. Some have used this verse to argue for some kind of universal salvation because Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. Then one day, maybe God will overwhelm all the creation by his love and all creation will be saved. The only problem with that is the rest of the Bible. Like a few verses later in chapter two, verse 15, where it says Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Like it doesn't sound like reconciliation there. It sounds like a beatdown, a public spectacle. Not to mention more explicit passages spoken of by Jesus himself, like in Matthew 13, uh, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore. They sat down and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like one day, but we know it's not good for those for whom this is their eternal destiny. But there's not going to be a day when everyone would just be welcomed in and embraced as though the, the gospel and the cross of Jesus had no meaning. So what does this mean? Well, the language of reconciling all things to himself. This language picks up the Old Testament idea of shalom or peace or well-being. And that God is working to bring a universal shalom or peace or well-being. But this peace is rooted in Jesus and the reconciliation provided through his sacrifice on the cross. Like it's a common mistake many people have with Jesus. Like at Christmas times. Some people think the angel said to the shepherd, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill to all men. Now, we think that from Luke 2, 14, because that's what the King James Version of the Bible says. But it's a very poor translation of the original Greek. 
Every other translation gets it right when it actually says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those whom, with whom he is pleased. Other translations, I think even better than ESV, say, among those with whom he favors. Favors is the idea of grace. Who has peace with God through Jesus Christ? Those whom he favors or has extended grace to. At the beginning of the letter of the Colossians, Paul opens it up as he does all of his letters with grace and peace. Every time Paul says that, peace follows grace. Peace always comes after the grace of God. So Jesus has not come to bring peace to all men, but to those who've been reconciled to God through Jesus and his sacrifice and his grace. Then we can have peace. Romans 5.1 tells us the same thing. Shalom, well-being. But to all else who haven't been reconciled through Jesus, there is the sword. There is judgment. And when all things are new and made right, there will be an eternal state of peace and shalom and reconciliation for God and his people. But sadly, not everyone will get to experience that. So if the church at Colossae was being tempted to question the sufficiency of Jesus, Paul pulls back the curtain to reveal Jesus and all of his splendor and glory as if he were saying, OK, you're not sure if Jesus is enough. Well, here he is. Now, what do you think? Is he enough? Is he enough for your life? Is he enough for your worry, for your weight, for your wound, for your care, for your concern? Or in your mind, in your heart, have you made that so big it doesn't feel like Jesus is enough? He can't help. Jesus himself told a parable in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they're interchangeable. It's a place where God rules and reigns as king. Not a specific location or a country, but it's today it's in the hearts of God's people where they're advancing his kingdom by loving him and obeying his commands and producing the fruit of the spirit. In other words, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is where Jesus is alive and his people and they are following him, loving him, obeying him. And Jesus says his kingdom, life in him, life in us, is like a treasure buried in a field. And a man sells all he has to buy the field so he can have the treasure. Not to everyone but the man, it's just a field. And this guy sells everything that he owns to buy a field. And all of his friends would be like, what is wrong with you? All you have is a field. You have no more possessions, but you just have a field. But to this man, it's not a field. It's a treasure worth everything. And in this parable, Jesus is illustrating what his kingdom is like. To those who don't love Jesus or know Jesus, he doesn't seem to be very much worth it. He's just a field. Why would you reorient your life around him? Why would you cling to him and hope when life is really hard and seemingly hopeless? Why don't you just chase sin and indulge in sin to feel the ache that you're feeling? Why would you give up careers where you could earn more money and have more prestige and it provides more security to go to the nations and make Jesus known among those who have yet to treasure him? Why would you give time and money, energy to love and serve and invest in others? 
Isn't life about getting all you can for yourself and making life about enjoying everything for yourself? Because the reason is to us who know him, who've met him, who've been loved by him, who, who love him in return, he is our greatest treasure. It's really one of the great tests to know if you are a Christian. It's not how many religious works have you piled up or how much of the Bible do you know. The greatest test is, is Jesus your treasure? Is he of such value inside of you and in your life that you're reorienting everything around him and you would be willing even to sell and give away and sacrifice anything and anyone to have him, to have and enjoy him? And if you ever have to choose Jesus or this, Jesus or them, it's always Jesus because he's always more valuable than anything or anyone else. Is he of your greatest value for which you're willing to sell everything to have him, to enjoy him? Many of you know there was another man who came to Jesus seeking eternal life. He was wealthy and he asked Jesus, what do I, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Seemed like a slam dunk gospel conversation for Jesus. Like if anyone could get this guy into heaven, it should be Jesus. I'll tell you what you need to do for eternal life. But as you know, in the story about the rich young ruler, Jesus knew the man that he, and he had a heart issue and he exposed it by telling him, sell everything you own and give to the poor and then come and follow me. And the man walked away sad because he was more in love with his money and possessions than with Jesus. Some of us will sell it all and follow Jesus. And some of us will cling to what we have and run from Jesus. What I hope you hear today is this. Jesus is worth it. He is worth our lives. He is worth our love. He is worth our devotion. He is the supreme one. And it's not just that he's great and we just look upon him in all of his amazement like, wow, there's no one like him. It's also he's our friend. He is our shepherd. Like he cares about our soul more than anyone else. And with us who are weak and feeble and meandering and we wander away and we mess up with us, he is incredibly patient, and kind, and gracious. He doesn't chase us down with a stick to beat us. He chases us down to pick us up and bring us back. Constantly. Because we're constantly wandering. He is great, but he's also gracious. He knows all the dark and shady parts of our soul and he never kicks us out of his family but continues to bring us back to learn to grow our affection for him. And much of our walks with Jesus is him helping us to see and expose the things or the people that we treasure more than him and teaching us how we need to learn to see him as our ultimate treasure. Because when he is our ultimate treasure, then... And only then can we truly love and enjoy everything and everyone else. But we're constantly fighting to put everything and everyone else as our ultimate. And he's constantly at work to keep us from doing that. Because he wants us to love life and love him and enjoy what he's given us. And like every single person in this room is in a fight in their soul to find and enjoy Jesus as your greatest treasure. 
Like, if you don't think it's a battle for you, like if you're sitting here like, man, I don't really, that's not really hard for me. It's because you've learned to trust in your good works, whatever you define as good works, as good enough to make you good. Or you've gotten really good at comparing yourself to others who aren't as good, and as long as you're better than them, you're okay. But if we could be honest this morning, it's a battle, and if it's a battle that if we fight it on our own, we're going to lose every time. But when we stop and turn to Jesus in humility and repentance, we say, I can't win this, I need you to help, then he rushes us, he rushes in and gives us himself. And then we simply learn to trust him. We learn to rest in him. We see that the life he's given us is his life and it leads to joy in everything. And in this life called the Christian life, it's not as much about what we do for him, but it's learning to be captivated by what he's done for us. Most of the time we beat ourselves up because we evaluate what we've done. It's never enough. We always mess up. We're always beating ourselves down. And Jesus is like, take your eyes off of yourself and look to me. Look at what I've done for you. Trust me, believe in me, rest in my good work. And then that energizes and that empowers and that enables us to live this Christian life with joy, with hope, with love, with peace, with patience, with kindness, with goodness. This is part of the reason that we do communion every single week. That we gather. It's an open table in the sense that we invite anyone who's gathered. We don't just invite covenant members. But anyone who proclaims faith and trust in Jesus come and share in this meal. The broken bread, the fruit of the vine, his broken body, his shed blood. Each week we can smell and we can taste and we can feel and we can savor who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Like it's, it's don't just like, oh, this bread's really good this week or it's a little saltier this week or it's a little dry and I might choke on it if I'm not careful. The juice, grape juice, oh, why don't we have wine? Don't, don't get caught up in all that. It's Jesus is good. He, he willingly, lovingly allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed because we are sinful. But he did it lovingly. This meal is not for everyone. So if you're not someone who's publicly professed faith in Jesus for his life now and life forever and for forgiveness of sin through baptism, then please, there's no shame in not sharing in this meal. No one's keeping record. There's nobody who's going, oh, well, this person didn't take communion this week. I wonder what's wrong with them. Nobody does that. There's no shame. Just abstain. If this is not what you've done, let's talk later about how you publicly profess faith in Christ and Jesus, uh, publicly profess faith in Jesus through baptism. It's also not for someone who's holding on to sin or hiding in sin and not willing to repent and trust in Jesus. Like, please, 1 Corinthians 11 would tell you, don't share in this meal. Until by his grace, you can be in a place where once again you want to fight. You want to work. It doesn't mean you've got to go weeks proving your repentance. No, no, no. Is the confession of your heart this morning I love Jesus and I hate my sin. Help me, Jesus. That's enough. That's enough. That's all he wants. It's just for us to constantly say, I love you, Jesus. I see what you've done for me. I hate my sin. Help me. And that's walking in repentance. And that's enough to share in this meal and to enjoy this meal once again.
And so take a few moments to reflect where you are in your life, in your heart. And when you're ready, like you don't have to wait so many minutes and you've had enough sadness or remorse, you can come running to the table because you're ready right from the jump. But when you're ready, come and receive the elements, return to your seats, and then we'll share in this meal together.